Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. This is the second in the two-part series of uh, Best of British Films of 2014. Today I've got with me writer-director David Mould. Hello, David. Hello. And how are you today? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, yeah, nothing really to report. Just putting off uh, writing something, which is uh, one of my favourite hobbies. I think I, I'm a king procrastinator, which I think you know most writers tend to be, unless you're really lucky and you, you're not. Button. So any excuse not to have I, the right. I think, I think they're liars. I think they're liars. I know I think exactly. They they absolutely are. And so you know, so I, I I can sit at home and talk to a lovely pensive squared black and white photograph of you without a beard, and imagine <laughs> you to me and talk about cinema. So that's great. Are you? I mean, just just continue on this theme for a second. Not the beard bit. The writing bit. Um, are you a bit? Are you? Because I, I would class myself as someone that likes to have written rather than enjoys the writing. Well, that's that's a quote I use all the time, and I saw someone. I don't. Who's it from? Who's it from, by the way? Well, I'd always attributed it to Henry Miller, but I noticed someone on Facebook. Okay. Someone on Facebook had put a, um, a that same quote yesterday in like a black box, and it was it was like an old fashioned uh, text to Dorothy Parker. Mm. Now, they were both around oh, at right. the same time, so it would be kind of interesting. I know, you know, Dorothy Parker was the, the queen of uh, Bon Moss, uh, but I'd always attributed to Henry Miller. So it's either Henry Miller or Dorothy Parker. But, you know, I, fa- I, I, think on the sub- I think it's so true, you know, that whoever said it, and I'm the same what you just said, I hate writing. I hate it. It's like, which I think that's the way it should be. If something's good and it's, it should be difficult, you know, and so that it's so horrible oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's so traumatic. That's me being melodramatic, you know. But once I've done <laughs> it and I've gone, oh, that's, it's like, then that's the best bit, you know. Having written is the best bit, definitely. My favourite on it, because forever, I was listening to lots of Q&As with filmmakers about their, about their craft mm. and everyone... You know, you get everyone come over. Well, I get up at six in the morning and I do I do an hour and a half of 
brainstorming and and then when by the time I finish the eight hour shift I go I start reading a book about a subject I want to write about next <laughs> and I always leave myself half in a thought for when I pick up the pen the next day and I'm thinking nobody works like that and then and that seems to be how everybody presents themselves and then Michael Arndt was on uh, Jeff Goldsmith's Q&A talking about writing Toy Story and yeah. Jeff as he always does says you know what's your writing habit and he said I get up at seven and I read the paper he said, I have a coffee, and then I read some more of the paper. Then I procrastinate till I hate myself. <laughs> and I thought, thank God, somebody said it. <laughs> that well, sums it up the most for me. Well, there's novelists who... Um, Jonathan Franson, for one, has to get... He writes in an office, a small office, and he makes sure there's no internet connection, and he's actually glued up all his ports, we can't put uh, ISBN in and anything. Fuck and off, really? There's no internet on it. <laughs> all it is is a word. Because he said, if otherwise, he said, I'd never write a sentence. It'd take me like a day to write like a line. <coughs> and he, he actually, he's That's pretty amazing. smart. He actually puts cotton wool balls in his ears and uh, one of those masks that women wear when they're on the sunbed. And so he's not disturbed, even because he's, he's, I think he's working in Manhattan. So, you know, the noise of traffic and stuff like that. And that's how yeah. he, you know, he writes every day uh, on a, in a regimented way. And I was like, fair play to you if you can do that, but I couldn't. It's not for me. No. Well, look, sir, let's talk about some stuff that did get written and did get made into films. Yes. So we're going to start with your top five British films of 2014. So do you want to give us number five? Yeah, well, before I'll start talking about them, I do have to say, you know, this is really, really, you know, this, the, the, the top ten and the top five culture now is, like, people start doing them in September, November, or October, and I've already done one top ten for Cineview, which was all films mm -hmm. I'd seen, even if they hadn't been released, and then I still haven't done my top ten, which is UK theatrical release, and I haven't done top ten documentaries, and it's just, oh, my God, all these bloody lists. So, but going <laughs> and waiting, you know, and one of the things to do to refresh your memory, because when we were talking, you were saying, oh, I forgot that film was released this year. And I kind of go through my notes, but I also cheat a little bit. There's a great site that professionals use called the Film Distributors Association website, and it's what all the film distributors use. And it's got a calendar. So what I always do when I'm doing my top ten, I go through from January to December and make notes of the ones I think may be in there, and then get a list to say 50, and then work backwards and then cut it down so you get 10. And then you don't miss anything. Obviously, you have to have seen the oh, film. Very clever. Yeah. And, and, and of course, doing, yeah. Do, doing that for this, I just thought, there's always this argument of like, this year's been a good year, or this year's been a bad year. I actually heard someone say, that, I think it was Catherine Shaw who writes for The Guardian, uh, so it was a terrible year, and the, the Peter Bradshaw nearly fell out of his seat. It was on the Guardian uh, film podcast, <laughs> and he was. It's been an amazing year. But then someone else said, not on that show, recently, uh, Barry what a quote of Barry Norman, and saying, you know, there's never it's a good year, it's a bad year. There's always good stuff. Ninety percent of stuff released or even made will be mediocre to poor. And 10% mm. will be really good. Now, that never changes. You know, I, 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 I've been doing top 10 lists for way over a decade, decade and a half. And when I go through every film released 
and I go through to get my top ten, I always make notes of around 30 films I have to get into. And that's every year. And so basically, yeah. my point is, it's never a good or bad year. There's always good stuff. But British films this year, I would have struggled to get a top ten. I really, really would have. But you're only asking for a five, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think I don't think it was that great of a year for British cinema, to be honest. You know, which people will okay. argue with me and say, "Well, that's not the case." There's been loads of great stuff and stuff, but you know. Anyway, my number five is yes. Lock. Okay, and what was what was it about Lock? Um, oh, I, I, you know, you nearly escaped me then because I thought you were going to say. Uh, what is lock? And then uh, act like, even though I know you knew what it was, and you'd, uh, you'd get me to like talk about what the plot was or something. Lock was. <laughs> I, I, I actually wrote about this for uh, the Skinny, and it, the reason I wrote about it because they wanted me to write a whole piece about films that have one character in the film. Yeah. Because you know, lock takes place in a car. Uh, it's about 85 minutes long, and Tom Hardy's in it, and everything happens with him on the phone. He's a contractor, a big, huge construction in London, and he's driving back to Wales, I presume. I think it's Wales, because he's Welsh, or to wherever his family are. And he is happily married, has kids, and is... He's had an affair, stupid one-night stand, and the woman's got pregnant. So she's about to give birth, so he's going to her... And it all takes place in the car. And Tom Hardy does a Welsh accent very, very well. Now, the weird thing about accents, I was vis-a-vis uh, Jude Law in the submarine film. What was it called? Black. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Black or something. Anyway. Blackfish. Yeah, that was it. Everyone gave Jude Law a hard time for that accent, saying how bad it was. Now, but I think what the issue is, is because we, if we know someone as a persona, as an actor, and you're used to, like, Jude Law's estuary English, when you hear him speak an accent, even if the accent's bang on the money, it's like, that's terrible, because you know it's Jude Law doing an accent. Because I, I mm. heard him on radio, a clip from the film on the radio, because you couldn't see him, I was like, that's a really good Aberdeen accent. But he just got so much abuse for uh... it. Kind of, Tom Hardy kind of didn't get as much abuse, but a lot of people said, is he Welsh? What, what's the accent? Anyway, I'm really digressing. I, a lot of people would say this is a radio play. A lot of people would say this is not cinema. But, you know, I completely disagree. This is completely cinematic because it's all about the close-up. And there's nothing more cinematic than the close-up. You know, television doesn't tend to deal in close-ups. Theatre does not deal in close-ups. Cinema deals in close-ups. You think of the great films of Bergman or Dreyer, or, you know, two examples. And an actor, really great acting, can do everything with their face, with their eyes, without saying mm. or doing everything. Tom Hardy does this and more in this film. And it's really, it's also, it's so tense. You know, you're on your edge of your seat, and it's really upsetting. It's like you see in a man, a man's life disintegrate in front of your eyes. And he never loses it. But you can see his life just falling apart. And it's like one of the, one of the favourite... People ask me about films that I make or plan to make or, or I'm writing. And one of the terms I always use is something I'm really interested in. And one of the things that sums up my work is emotional violence. And this is an amazingly emotional, violent film. 
emotionally violent than destroying a family, your own family. Mm. You know, and that's really, really tough. And there's a brutal honesty in this. You know, he could quite easily get away with not telling his wife. He doesn't want to leave her. He doesn't want, you know, and he says to this woman that he's had the one night stand with and he's having the baby that he'll support them, but he doesn't love her. He's no interest in being with her. So he's not running off, but he's also a man of high moral standards because of his father. He had a tough time with his father. He was an alcoholic and a drunk, and obviously he was an alcoholic. He was a drunk. Uh, and so he's doing everything that his father didn't do or wouldn't do. And so he has this high level of moral standard. I just think it's a fantastic film. It's written and directed by Stephen Knight, who uh, is the showrunner and main writer on Peaky Blinders, which I think is one of the That's best right, yeah, on yeah. television. He also, he was also involved, bizarrely, in setting up uh, How to Be a Millionaire. I, uh, uh, is that the right name of that quiz show? I'm not really au fait with those type of He wants to be. He wants, <coughs> to, be he wants to be a millionaire. And then he wrote... Uh, Dirty Pretty Things for Stephen Frears, which was one of the first times on screen we saw the great Chiwetel Ejiofor um, uh, in that film about uh, the underclass of illegal immigrants in London working in a seedy hotel. Um, You know, and so, yeah, so that's that's my number five, Loch. You know, it's out on DVD now. Uh, It it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. (laughs) to great acclaim. More people seem to like it abroad, especially in America. It, it's, as you know, um, Stuart, it's award season now, and uh, this mm-hmm. is cropping up more and more. There's, like, Anne Thompson, who does... That's great, interesting. Anne Thompson does a great podcast with Eric Cohn, and they both work for IndieWire, and, you know, you should definitely check it out alongside Brickflix, of course. Uh, it's a great podcast, and they go out every week, and she's the doen of the awards season. She has a column, Thompson on Hollywood, on IndieWire. And she's been pushing for Tom Hardy to get nom- nominated for Locke for ages. And some of the, you know, uh, Boston Critics Circle, New York Critics Circle, have been given a nomination. I think even won at one point. And so it's getting a lot more love in America than it is over here, which, again, is another example of, you know, we don't know what we've got until it's gone. You know, I think... Tom Hardy, <laughs> Tom Hardy and Stephen Knight should be acclaimed. You know, I think Tom Hardy's an amazing, versatile actor. He's, he's got one of these things so many British actors don't have, which is just pure presence. And he's like a chameleon. Mm. And, you know, Stephen Knight, you know, people mock coming from Millionaire and TV. You know, this, this is a proper piece of filmmaking. This is his debut film as a director, you know, because he's predominantly a writer. Of course he is, yeah. So, you know, so yeah, as I said, people can check well, this out. Good, uh, on DVD so, uh, or VOD, it is available. So that's a good enthusiastic start there. Yes. What's what's number four? Number four is Starred Up, um, which is directed by David Mackenzie, who is a Scottish director. He's made um, uh, Hallam Foe. Uh, he made Young Adam from the Alexander Troshi novel, which I... First saw in Cannes, I played on certain regard with Hugh McGregor. Because uh, a very strange scene where Hugh McGregor pours custard all over Emily Watson before having sex with her. But nice. this film is a prison picture. Hit stars Jack O'Connell, who I guess we could say is the breakout British actor of the moment. Has even talked that he's going to get a nomination, uh, Oscar nomination for Unbroken. I personally don't think that's going to happen because that film has took a lot of money in America. Uh, but the reviews have been very poor, and it 
it's been snubbed completely by a lot of the awards committees. It got nothing at the Golden Globes where there was a huge push for it because it got a really late release. It was released on Christmas Day and Boxing Day over here. Um, uh, ben Mendelsohn's in it as well. And basically, the term start up is a term <coughs> for young people, young men, in predominantly young men in youth institutions who are too hot to handle and they can't be dealt with. So they're starred up and sent before they're actually legally an adult into the adult prison population. And this yes. happens to this amazing ball of energy Jack O'Connell in this film. He's completely unrecognisable from skins from where most people would know him from before this. And he's just, he's like a tinderbox ready to go off. He's obviously from a broken home. There's major, major issues. And it's... Um, now, it has melodramatic devices that a lot of people have complained about. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's, really it's not as good as uh, Jacques Diaz's Un Prophet, which is absolutely true. It isn't, you know, because Un Prophet is one of the greatest films... Uh, the last 20 years. Uh, it, it, it's a masterpiece. But this is completely different because what the melodra melodramatic device is when he goes into prison, his dad is the hard man in the prison and they're on the same wing. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I'm kind of guessing that would not be allowed to happen. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. Uh, his father is played by Ben Mendelsohn, who is just... He's amazed in everything he does, you know. Bizarrely, he was also in that submarine film uh, we were just talking about with Jude Law. Uh, he's like, mm. I don't mean this in a horrible way, but just sound like a, he's, he's got like, he looks like a really diseased, heroin addicted rat. And he's. Well, it, 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 he played that, didn't he, in Killing Me Softly? <laughs> well, in Killing Me Softly, he's unbelievable in that film. He's unbelievable. <coughs> I think most people first, most Anglo-Saxon audiences would have first come across him in uh, David Michaud's uh, Animal Kingdom, where he played the character of Pope. Yeah, me, me, that, was was that was certainly mine. But, you know, he's a legendary Australian stage actor, and now he's just, everything he's in, he's just so in, even in a really minor, small role. Like, he has a, he has a very small role in, um, what was the, uh, um, this is really bad, uh, the film with Ryan Gosling on the motorbike, Place Beyond the Pines. He has a very oh, small Oh, Place Beyond role. the Pines, yes. Yeah, he has a very small role in that. But every time he's on screen, you know, like we were just talking about Tom Hardy, the difference is he's not a leading man like Tom Hardy is. He's, he's a character actor. Uh, he's just as intense magnetism. And so their relationship's really, really interesting. And then further into the mix, we have Rupert Friend playing... Uh, public school educated social worker who runs a therapy group for the most violent guys on the wing by talking to them and trying to get them to emote. That sounds really cheesy, but it's really not. Now, that's based on the writer, uh, Jonathan Asser. This is his first script. He won the Discovery Prize at uh, 2013 London Film Festival uh, for, like, best. You don't have to be an actor or a director. It's like the best first breakthrough and he he won this mm. and this is based on him working in a prison and Rupert Friend plays his character and it's just 
really tough. It's really fantastic. The physical acting from Jack O'Connell is unbelievable. I think the first time we see him, it's, it's, um, the opening is fantastic. The opening is him getting transferred from the offender's wing to the prison. Now, we don't know that. We just see him in the back of the van and you kind of presume he's just been sent down and he's on his... Because he looks really pensive and he looks kind of sweet. And so you kind of think... He's going to jail for the first time, and he's terrified, as you would be. He's terrified. Yeah. And then we see him go in, we see him get stripped and everything and hosed down, give him his clothes, and then we see him in his cell putting oil, hiding oil in places, making a shift with two razor blades and burning a toothbrush to mould them in and hiding them. And you realise... He's not terrified at all. This is a guy that knows, but that, that really throws you. And then from then, it's just really an adrenaline-fueled uh, nightmare, you know. They shot it all in uh, the Crumlin Road prison in Belfast, and so it has that really weird Victorian look. Again, this is a film that's out mm. on DVD now because it came out uh, in August. Um well, no, no, they came out in America in August. They came out here uh, end of May, beginning of June. And so I think most people would have seen it because it's a, a film that a lot of people talked about, but it, it's it's fantastic, you know. You know how, do you, how do you think... St- how do I think what? I was just going to say, David, how do you think it got from under the shadow of the long shadow that's been forever cast mm. by Scum as a, as a prison well, movie? Because obviously... I, I, I don't think it did. I really don't think it did. I think Scum is completely different because Scum, Scum is completely based in reality. You know, that, that was and that was how it was. This, because I was just about to say, the last 20 minutes, things happen that could never happen in a real prison, which were people have taken. And I was mm. like, well, yeah, it's, but it's drama, you know what I mean? You go with that. And if you go with it, you go with it. That's why I say it's not at the level of unperfect. And it's nowhere at the level of scum. Mm. But, you know, it's pretty okay. damn good. And the performances are fantastic. And it's, it's moving. But it's also tough. It is really tough. You know, and I just think it's great. And it was great to see they had some money off the BFI to do a proper uh, P&A. And so there was posters on buses. There was posters on the tube. People knew about it for a long time before. No, totally. You know, and that, and that really... <clears throat> helps because it, it made money at the box office which is fantastic a tough british film that's a great piece of cinema made money I, that's something that should be completely acclaimed so do you, do you think in that way then it's a kind of it's, it's it harks back to things like um like get carter or or long good friday that kind of tradition of british film no because i because they're crime films this sounds bizarre even though it's in prison we never know why anyone's mm. in there. That's not interested in crime. It's interested in how locations distort and destroy the spirit and how it changes okay. people and inst- institutionalizes people. You know, which obviously was Alan Clark's huge raison uh, d'etre uh, institutionalization. And, you know, it, it's also uh, a film that's released on, I don't know when this podcast is going to go up, it's released on Friday, 
um, which is the 10th or the 11th, isn't it? It's what's the 7th today, so yes. 8th, 9th, uh, which Fred Wiseman's National Gallery. Wiseman's a filmmaker in a completely different way, is obsessed with institutions. Uh, and so I don't think it's comparable to Get Carter or The Long Friday at all. I was just thinking. Right. I was thinking in terms of tough, you know, being tough films. That's all I was thinking. That that kind of element where, you know, it's not uh, heroic yeah, people no, at no, all. You, you could def- you could definitely put it put it with a, with uh, with those two most definitely. Yeah. Mm. Okay, then we'll look. Let's let's jump to number three. Okay. And what's that? Number three. Number three is now. I don't want people saying, "Oh, number three is actually an Irish film." because it's directed by Lenny Abramson, who's Irish, which she is Irish. But Frank was co-financed by the BFI. They put more money in than Ireland did. The majority of the cast is English and American. The writers are English. Frank Sidebottom is English. It's an English film. And so my number three is Frank, which, again, is a film I quite... A few intense, not disagreements, but lots of people were giving it a kick in before it came out. And they were like, well, you know, it's just going to be... Because they see Maggie Ginnerhall in it, who's American, and Scoop McNeary, who's yeah. American, they're like, oh, this is the Americans destroying the story of Frank Saibon. And basically, the head and the name, this has got nothing to do with Frank Saibon whatsoever. You know, uh, one of the deals they did before, uh, what was the guy's name who played Funk Sidebottom? You probably know this. Do you? In the film? No, 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 no. The real it... Funk Sidebottom, what was the oh, guy's no. name? Oh, God, is it Chris Seavey? Yes, Chris Seavey. The deal they did with Chris Seavey before he died, he was very protective of the persona of Frank, uh, Frank Sidebottom, and he didn't want them, wouldn't allow them to do a film about him becoming Frank Sidebottom or him as Frank Sidebottom. He would allow them to use the iconography yeah. of some of the background and obviously the head was <coughs> it. So that was his decision. It wasn't some studio executive's decision. And then, mm. you know, it's written by John Ronson and Peter uh, Storham. You know, Peter Storham, you know, wrote uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, well, adapted it from John Le Carre's novel and got an Oscar nomination. Mm. John Ronson, we all know John Ronson, is a great novel, not novelist, writer, columnist, the uh, raconteur. And John Ronson was actually in the Frank Sidebottom band. Uh, and right, so the yeah, character yeah. of Donald Gleason in the film is based on John Ronson. And now that, all part of that is completely true. But it's a great... I, 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 I always picture to people, I was like, forget about the Frank Sidebottom thing. It's a film about, one of the best films ever made about creativity and mental illness and outside of them and how the idea, the romanticization of the depressive artist. And artists are not artists because they're depressive and, vice, and or vice versa. And also the music in this, you know, I love Frank Sidebottom. But the music's quite twee, and you're kind of laughing at it and stuff. The music in this is amazing. The music is like, it's like some bizarre, droney, krautrock epics with these really strange lyrics written uh, by Lena Abramson and Michael Fassbinder. You know, it's amazing. The music's completely different. They could actually be a standalone band. Actually, they actually released 
uh, a couple of the songs from the film as singles that you could buy on iTunes that did pretty, pretty well. Right. You know, and, so, and so the music's really <laughs> interesting in this film. Did you not know that? No, not at all, no. Uh, you know, because uh, <coughs> you've seen the film, because this is the thing, I, I'm just presuming... No, this is what, this is one, no, no, I've not, no, it's uh, it's one that I, I actually was, because I've been following, there is actually a Chris, a Chris Seavey documentary that's floating, that's, that's in, in, I think they've done the Kickstarter, it's in the process of being edited down now into, into a feature-length film. Um, so I was aware of that, and then I think I did actually just get put off by the fact that it wasn't Frank Sidebottom, and, and that, and that, by the time I got the gist of what it was and people talking about how much they liked it, I'd kind of missed it. So, well, you know, again, That's excuse. like the majority of these films, um, it is out on DVD now. I think I'm fairly certain it is, uh, and it's definitely well worth seeing. Very, very moving, you know. And this is a film that has mental illness, suicide, uh, sex, anger, rock and roll. South by Southwest Festival in Austin. You know, what more do you want? You know, come on, people. This is it. <laughs> you know, this is fantastic. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of a road movie. And, you know, it's one of the first times I've, I've seen Twitter used that comes up on screen that isn't really cringy. That's, like, pretty good. Um, so, yeah, so I, I definitely... And, you know, even if you look... If you love Frank Sidebottom and Chris Seavey and stuff like that, I think you'll still get something out of it. And, you know, Michael Fassbinder, at the time he decided to do this film, he could have done... He could, and he still does, he's gone bigger and bigger and bigger, but he could have done anything. And he's wanted to do a film where he spends 97% of the film with the mask on. You know, they could have got it's someone else to do it. They could have got someone else, but, and he said that's always me under the mask. I think John Ronson said the reason you know is because Michael's got very distinctive hands, and so you can, you can always tell <laughs> if it was someone else because Michael's got his hands huge. He's like a docker, he's got the hands of a docker like ham hops. Uh, yeah, no, fair play to him, you know, and the, and the cast, as I've mentioned, is fantastic. Uh, Donald Gleason just seems to be growing and growing as an actor, he's really distinctive, and you know, he's fantastic. You know, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is always good. Scoop McNeary again. This is—I've just realised this is really weird. Every film I've mentioned so far has had someone in it in that submarine film because Scoop McNeary's in the submarine film too. That's really bizarre. That's kind of thrown me a little bit. Anyway, so <laughs> I think I think your connections are going to end now, aren't they? So now you're breaking now for for your number two. You're yeah. breaking with the format now. You're going to give me two films you're going to put at number two. I am. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing a, you're going to explain, and you want to explain to me why and what they are. Well, first of all, I'm going to be completely honest because I believe in honesty. And when I did my top ten of the year last year, I had three, mm. two, three trilogies in there, but just as one film. And then I had two mm. joint number twos. And so I could get, and I was trying to link all the films, and it's just me, it's just a way of me getting more films into ten or more films into five. But then I kind of be really highfalutin, like I said to you earlier, and said, well, you know, I think the two filmmakers are really connected, and they make formalist films, and not many people know who they are. So I put them together. It gives people a chance to look at both the films, <coughs> which is also true. Uh, the two films. No, it is true, are... and I, 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 I welcome it. Okay, well that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> the two films are. <laughs> Exhibition by Joanna Hogg, uh, and then a film by... It's made by two directors, but predominantly a director called... Oh, what's his name? Um, 
anyway, I'll, I'll get on to that. Talk. I'll talk about Exhibition first. Exhibition is a film by Joanna Hogg. Joanna Hogg has made three films. She started off writing EastEnders, uh, but we won't hold that against her. You know, I think writing writing for a short period of time or continuing drama, as I like to call it, uh, is a really good training ground for having to write quickly and well. You know, and writing with yeah. established characters. You know, and, and so a lot of people can get trapped in that and, and really enjoy the money. And then 10 years later, they're still there. But she got out quite quickly and she made a film that won the Guardian's first film award. They played Venice Film Festival. Um, what's it called? Oh, geez, this is really embarrassing. And then she, and, and then she, then she made a film called Archipelago. Uh, she was kind of oh, one yeah. of the first... She was one of the first people to give a role to. Um, he's really. Uh, the, oh, this is really bad. Anyway, exhibition. <laughs> um, sorry, you don't have to, no, here we go. Tell us about um, the. Tell us about the film. Don't worry about the facts. You tell us about the film. That's okay. what you're giving us. You. All right. Exhibition is all, all <laughs> takes place in North London House with an artistic couple who've been together many, many years. Now, interestingly, the artistic couple are played by the artist Liam Gillick. Uh, and the musician uh, Viv Albertine. Now she's that is really interesting. Yeah, she is fantastic in this. Now the film, we actually watch their relationship disintegrate in this house that they're trying to sell. There's a very small role for Tom Hilston, who I was trying to think of before, who yeah. uh, Joanna Hogg, the director, gave. Uh, his first TV role, I think, in Unrelated, which was her first film, and then. Archipelago, which was her second film. Uh, and the, the house is so big, it becomes like, and it's really interesting architecturally, the house, and it becomes like a character in the film. And it's so divisive the way it seems to separate them from like his studio downstairs. And there's lots of conversations between um, intercoms and stuff like that. And it's just really, now, you know, I do have to say, I shouldn't have to say this, Joanna Hogg is a formalist filmmaker. Uh, which we've talked about before, and that means for a lot you of people... Me, you, schooled me, you schooled me on it last yeah. time. Uh, and what that would mean, and what, of course, if you're just used to watching uh, Anglo-Saxon, the hegemony of Anglo-Saxon narrative, when you see a film like this, it's like, oh, it's really boring. It's really, really slow. Because there's no real plot to speak of, and there's lots of silences, there's not that much dialogue. But it's about shape, and, you know, it's in the term formalism. It's the way you're telling a story. There's not only one way to tell a story with a free act structure. There's numerous ways. And if you give the film a chance and, and you allow it to breathe... And, you know, formalist cinema is very meditative, meditative, you know, and so you can sit there and watch and think about yourself. As it's like... This may not be attractive to a lot of people. It's like going to see an animal. <laughs> you know... Now, I think that's fantastic, but a lot of people will be put off by that. And, uh, uh, you know, her films do not make money. She gets acclaimed on the festival circuit, and cineasts and film critics from all over the world acclaim her films. But, as I said, most people won't even know who she is in this country at all. This film did quite well, actually. It, you know, for her, it played quite extensively in um, the case and, and took lots of money. And also, it even broke out to a cinema that's quite close to where we live, well, closer to me than you. But the genesis on Mile End Road... It uh, played oh, there, like quite a couple of weeks, which was quite shocking for a film like that. 
not shocking in a good way because that's fantastic, you know. And so, mm. yeah, that's that is uh, exhibition. You know, that is also out on DVD. Kearson uh, uh, have released it, and so you know, and all their films can can be bought. They should all checked out. They're all. She's really interested in a lot of people. Gave her a hard time with Archipelago, especially saying, "Oh well, she makes films about the middle to upper classes who've got lots of money and they're horrified at the world they live in and their lives are so difficult." I'm not bothered about that. And I was like, "Well, why should we only be allowed to watch working class people or upper class people? You know, all people are people. The the problems are still interesting. One of my favourite filmmakers uh, is um, Michelangelo Antonioni. All his films dealt with that. And he's a filmmaker she has been compared to uh, quite a lot. I, I don't think yet she's at that level as a, a greater master as Antonioni is. But the themes are very, very similar, you know. So if that makes sense to you and, you know, you like Antonioni, you may, you may be not seen a Joanna Hogg film, give her a go and go and check check this out and check her other films out because, you know, I think she's really, really good and she really needs support. We take that with, with all the thumbs up. It's intended. Thank you. So what's the your second... Uh, the second film well, is number two that you wanted to highlight. It's got a big... Yeah, second film number two is... I've got a great title. It's called, called The Spell to Ward Off the Darkness. And it's made by two directors, both called Ben. Uh, ben Rivers and Ben Russell. Predominantly, uh, I'm interested in the director, Ben Rivers, who has mm. made, a, he's made a film that won the top prize at the Rotterdam Film Festival uh, a, a couple of years ago. And he, again, is an arch-formalist. His background is very much in... Um, Art. I think he, he was educated at art school. A lot of his films started off as installations, and he's made. He had a success with a film a couple of years ago called Two Years at Sea, which is absolutely fantastic. Two Years at Sea is follows this guy called Jake Williams, who's just he's like a hermit, very big bearded, long haired guy who lives in the middle of nowhere, and he just went. And filmed him on 16mm. He always shoots stuff on 16mm on film. And this played the London right. Film Festival. This is the film that won the prize at Rotterdam. And it's just unlike anything you've ever seen, you know. And it's like, it's just, again, very slow. It's in black and white. But you just get so interested in this guy. And because there's hardly any dialogue, and it's just him going about his daily routine as a hermit living in, in the woods somewhere. And so the follow-up film he made was a film he made with another artist, the one I'm talking about, Spell of Wood After Darkness, uh, with Ben Russell. And it's like three films in one. There's... Okay. One of it takes place at a black metal festival with black metal bands, mm -hmm. which is just fantastic. One is all the Northern Lights in, like, Iceland and stuff like that. And then one is all pagan reenactors... And this like failed commune that collapses, and they're all shot in black and Sounds white. Sounds amazing. It is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's just come out on DVD. Where, where, where did you see it? Where did you see it? Where, where, where did you catch it originally? When I catch it, I knew about it for ages because it played the Venice Film Festival 
last year, okay. 2013. And because I know the work of Ben Rivers, and he's one of my favourite British filmmakers, or favourite filmmakers, I think he's really interesting, yeah. you know. Uh, and so I knew it was on my horizon. And because of the bands, I'm not really that big of a metal guy, but black metal I find kind of quite interesting on an uh, anthological level. Oh, I level. do too. Yeah, and, 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 and so that, that interests me. Uh, and so, yeah, I kind of knew about it. And then one of my favourite companies in London who I have good relationships with as a film critic is Soda. And Soda released it. And it did, like, one day at the ICA. And it was just before yeah. I was going to Bosnia, so I couldn't go. But they they yeah. sent me a, uh, a online screener. And so I watched it oh, on, on my online screener that Soda had sent me. Uh, it is one of those films that works better at the cinema, but, you know, it's, it's one of those films that's really difficult to describe. A lot of formalist cinema, it's like, you know, when we talk about f you and I outside the podcast and we talk as, you know, working filmmakers and stuff like that, and we talk about competitions and things, and for mm. formalist filmmakers it's very, very difficult because when you describe a formalist film, even on a piece of paper, there's nothing there. If you say it out loud, like you're pitching this to somebody, it's like, people are like, so? You know, and so it's really, really difficult to kind of ex explain these films because they're films that kind of have to be experienced, you know, and uh, that's why trying to raise money for them, it's like a catch-22, before you've made one is very, very difficult because no one can mm. see any think why you would want to do it. But, you know, I... I so me trying to explain this film, all I can do is say it's in three segments and it's about a warped spiritual existence within our secular Western culture. He's very interesting. He's been described as an ethnographer a lot of the time. A lot of those films, you know, two years of see, especially on this, could be looked upon as uh, ethnology. Okay. So that's my number two. Now, I, now, I hope... That's going, to convince, that's going to convince people to go and discover uh, Ben Rivers and Joanna Hogg because I certainly, if you give it a chance, I think it will blow people's minds and really go, this is just so different and so unique. And we can have, there's nothing wrong with having, I always tell the story of going to see, seeing a double bill and shocking the film producer, who's a good friend of mine, Sol Papadopoulos, that we went to see. Uh, the Uncle Boon Me by a picture from Rathacol, which won the Palm Door. And then him and his wife are going for a drink. And they say, You're going to come? I said, No, no, I'm going to go and see another film. They go, What are you going to go see? I was like, Jackass 3D. And you know, <laughs> there's, that's what's great about cinema the two films are that can coincide. And you know, they were both awe inspiring in their own way. You know, and people think I say that for effect and as a joke, but I completely do not. The, the, you know, and so. Big film, Hollywood, schlock, some people call them, can completely coexist alongside a really tough piece of uh, cinematic formalism. But I think, I think it's, it's the way you, I mean, you, you, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's your absolute intention, but you sell it well because you, you understand what it is about it and you're telling people what to expect. You're not saying, love this, love it. You're saying, this is what, it, this is what it's trying to do. This is what you, you can, if you allow yourself to be submerged in it, you can get something from it, it, but you have to allow that to happen. It isn't going to just wash over you like entertainment. And it, it makes me think of... Because um, with music, I think, for me, music I can I can make... Because, like, like, for the listener, uh, David was on earlier this year, was on in during 2014 and talked about formalism. And for me, 
having spoke to him off the podcast, it was it was it was something I had not really appreciated. I'd obviously seen stuff, but didn't know it was that, you know. And then obviously purposely gone out looking for it. I've seen more of it, and it's for me. It's like music. Like I can listen to Earth or Sun, mm. or even I mean a lot of death metal, you know. Um, but I can also listen to Neil Diamond and Neil Sedaka, yeah. which are obviously. A million miles from them, but they're, well, I'm, I'm they're exactly still music. The I'm exactly the same. And I think that's the thing. I'd hate to sort of think that I was this one thing or I was this other thing. It's like the, the, there's always good from all of it, I think. And and to find the, you have to go to the fringes to find interesting stuff, or else you end up you end up just with you know bland versions of things that have copied what's gone before. You need to because that all stuff is all scrunching in to try and influence the mainstream, and some of it will, and some won't. Yeah. <clears throat> I imagine. Right, then, let's just run down your five again before we yes. get on to your one, in true yep. countdown style. So at number five, we had Locke. At number mm. four, we had Startup. At yep. number three, we had Frank. And at yep. number two, we had The Pitch for Formalism with Exhibition and Spell to Ward Off the Darkness. Yes. So what, right, my good friend, I, before I talk is... About number one. Before I talk about my number one, I just realised I was like, oh my Go goodness, on. there's two films that were in here, and it should be in there, and I kind of love, because it's the first film I saw in 2015, and I was in Liverpool, because I'd gone home for Christmas, and my son's 13 now, so he's not really into kids' films and stuff, and then my partner wanted to see this film so badly, and I kind of was interested, and, and we were kind of a bit down, and it cheered us up so much, and it's Paddington. I think Paddington is just amazing, and my son, who was 13, loved it. We all came out with huge smiles on our face, and it really cheered Natalie up, and it was it's just fantastic. It's like, you know, it's a film that actually points out that, you know, we both live in London, Stuart, and I count myself lucky to live in mm. London, that says London is one of the great cities of the world, and it's welcoming, and people, from, no matter where you are from, you can come here and find a place for yourself here, no matter what country you're from. And it's, it's you know, both Peter Capaldi, who has a small role in it, and um, Hugh Bonneville, who plays Mr. Brown, said the only reason they did their film because it's an anti-UKIP uh, film. And it stands for everything that UKIP doesn't, and it's I just it's a it's a huge beam of joyful light, and so it would have been great fun to have that in my top five, but there was no room, so I just wanted to mention it and to see I'm not just all about fun. Well, I, 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 I love fun and entertainment just as much as the next guy. And then the other film I kind of completely forgot about, even though telling you going through the list, and I saw it at Cannes, yeah. and I've seen it at London Film Festival, and I've seen it at the cinema, and it's great, and I completely forgot about it and it should be there somewhere so I'm just going to mention it and it's still on the cinema so go and see it at the cinema because you have to see it at the cinema and that's Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. Ah, okay. Which I kind of completely forgot about, you know, it's like, it's very stupid of me but, you know, and, you know, that that's in the mix of the award season and I, I think it'll do really well at the BAFTAs because they have that nationalistic thing going on. Well, it's a half-nationalistic thing. It's a half-dog-licking-the-feats uh, of the Hollywood studio system, not like BAFTA used to be, <laughs> where they give the awards to the best films, like they do at the Cesars or the European Film Awards. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's going to get pushed out. Um, it'll, win, it'll be nominated for technical awards, the Oscars and stuff, but I think it's a shame because Timothy Spall won Best Actor in Cannes, which is well-deserved, and I was really hopeful that he was going to, especially in a... A poor year, really, because there's no front runner at 
in the awards season, which culminates with the Oscars. And so, you know, I think we're, we're living in a world where people are talking the favour for best actor is Ed, Eddie Redmayne, which is quite frankly laughable, over some like Timothy Spall for Mr. Turner is a really sad, sad state of affairs. And so I just wanted to throw my um, worthless opinion in there for that. And then move on to number one, which is Under the Skin. Which, Wonderful you know, movie. Seems a long, long time ago now. It, it pre- a very divisive film. Whenever a film's labelled as being divisive, I always think it's a really great thing because, you know, uh, you're not going to please all of the people all of the time. And, you know, whenever a film isn't u- uniformly acclaimed at a film festival, everyone says, oh, it's so divisive. You know, this happened to Tree of Life when that screened in Vienna. <laughs> uh, this happened to Under the Skin when it premiered in Venice. And you had people applauding and saying, what a masterpiece. And then you had people booing. You know, and I think it's a great sign when a film's booed at a film festival and cheered at the same time. Because, you know, there's nothing worse as an artist than people shrugging their shoulder, giving a gallic shrug and walking off. You know, that someone's passionate enough to boo your film is kind of a, a, a reaction. And it's better than having no reaction. Anyway. When this totally, t- Venice, totally agree. Go on. When this premiered in Venice last year, this went through all this. It was released quite early in the year. And... This is, again, I don't want to hark on, this is a piece of formalism, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. It's from the novel, the great novel by Michelle Faber, which is quite different than the film. It's a lot more detailed. You know, Jonathan Glazer said he spent a long, long time with uh, the guy who wrote the script of Walter Campbell in working through the novel and they went through so many drafts and then you just realise you just have to really cut to the bones because there's so much going on and the film's so descriptive and it, you would have needed a hell of a lot more money to do the, the book straight and I said, no, you don't, shouldn't do book straight anyway you know literature can do things cinema can, Did you, do... can I ask you a question can I ask you a question yeah. about it Did you th- I mean I've read the book and seen the film it's a rare yeah. thing for me and I loved the book I read the book ages ago and it was a pleasant surprise to see there was the film coming what I thought they got was the mood of the book, but actually the book yeah. is on an industrial scale. So yeah. what they do is they actually do under the skin at a micro level. So they go, here's one strand, yeah. that's it. Well, no, you, you really hit the nail on the head. The mood, the mood of the book is completely transposed to the film. I think that's one of the great... When you get these unfilmable novels, legendary unfilmable novels that have been made into films, you know, one thinks of... Uh, I think Cronenberg's the master at this. You know, he did it twice with Crash and Naked Lunch. He didn't straight adapt those books. He took the tone and the mood of those books and the philosophical intellectual insight and transposed them to cinema, but they weren't the book. And that's what Under the Skin does. That's what they do, you know. And it's centred around an amazing (coughs) performance by, bless you, uh, Scarlett Johansson. Thank you. Where you know, I think a lot of people now would have read this and know that they they shot loads of stuff with like tiny cameras and having on the streets of Glasgow um, when no one knew she was making a film, no one knew who she was even, you know, and she was just wandering around Glasgow on like a Friday or Saturday night, just surrounded by people who were inebriated. And that really, mm. really works. But it, it has this thing that all great formalist art has. And, you know, bizarrely, great psychological horror has as well, which is, in the sense, 
when I use the term the other and the uncanny, I'm relating it to Freud's interpretation of the uncanny and the other. There's something there that you kind of can't describe. It's kind of, you go back to a novelist like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, this sense of this entity that is there but is, cannot be explained, and you can't see it, you can only feel it, which is kind of strange when you're watching a film to say you can feel something. But that, you know, that's why myself and the French call cinema the seventh art, and they look upon it as being the highest art form out of all of them. Uh, we have to talk about the music in this film by uh, M- 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 Mika Levy, who I think never done a score before, is an artist I've admired uh, for many, many years, and thought she'd, do an, she'd be an amazing, she'd do an amazing soundtrack for somebody. And, you know, uh, Jonathan Glazer got there first before anyone else. And the score is amazing. The score's been performed twice now, I think. I think they did one in Glasgow and they did one in, I think they did one in L.A. And they did one at the um, South Bank for the Meltdown Festival. And they screened the film and she did a live accompaniment to the film. Really? Yeah. And wow. it was, just, it was a, it's fantastic. The score's great. Really, it's really discursive and terrifying and takes you completely out of it. And, you know, those scenes of her just driving around and the guy following her on the motorbike and stuff and then the stuff with the uh, the deformed guy and stuff. And, you know, it is... It's, just, I mean, it's not a plot spoiler to say that she's an alien or whatever, but she's like the mm. idea of someone who is alien looking at a culture they completely do not understand. You know, and I I wrote about it when I came out on DVD for Cineview. And one of the I kept going on about uh, Martian poetry. Now Martian poetry is a form of poetry that came out of Cambridge University in the late eighties. And it was about describing what you can see as if you were from Mars so you'd never seen it before. Oh, okay. okay. And that's what this film is and does, which is so difficult. You know, imagine seeing things for the first time that you've never seen. You know, it's bizarre. You know, I, 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 I always say if, if aliens came down and they didn't reproduce in the way we, we reproduce and then they observed two people having sex, <coughs> they'd burst out laughing. They'd find it the most funniest thing they'd ever seen in the history of the, the world. That's because it's so alien to them. And, you know, that's what this film does. And it, it's also terrifying without any horror. And the ending's fantastic. I actually, I like it. I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I, don't, I thought the, the scene at the beach is one of the most horrifying scenes yes. probably of the year. You know, that is... And, and because, because I, I didn't know this watching it, but thinking of what you've said about Formula Serum is that it, it just throws it in there. It doesn't really explain why it's happening, what's happening, what's the consequences of it. But we all know what happens, you know, to a, a baby left on its own. Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing. There's that sense of dread that's there in, the, yeah. the, in, in, in a, lot, a lot of the film. But this idea that we need explanation, that we're children, that need to be spoon-fed things, you know, let people make their own mind up. But you, you don't need everything to be explained. It's, I, I just find that whole mm. argument completely banal. It's like when you, you, you ever, after misfortune, if you're ever upset or angry, you never go on the comments section of IMDb of like a formalist film or a difficult film, because it's just the comments. They're just like, but, but 
I want to know. It's like, I don't know, did, did you watch the TV series that finished a couple of weeks before Christmas called The Missing with James Nesbitt? Uh, it was really, no. really good. And it was about, it was an eight-parter about a child that's kidnapped from its parents in a small French town. And the mother kind of eventually gets on with her life and the father slowly become, goes mad, won't give up searching for the child. And it ends very ambiguously. And everyone, like on Twitter and on the BBC, because it was a BBC thing, in conjunction with an American studio, actually, stars in America, it's been nominated for Golden Globes and everything, and they're loving it over there. Uh, and all of the action over here was like, but we never find we never find out whether he finds the child. And, and it's like, well, it's not about that. You know, it's not fairyland. You know, do, do you think people who have their kids kidnapped, there's a happy ending? Or they even find the body. You know, there's numerous mm. families that we all know that are still going through this, still looking for their child. And th there's no closure. Closure's a fake concept of anyway. Anyway, I'm just saying that so it's getting, there's no need for everything to be explained. So, yeah, so I think that's, again, it's because that came out really early in the year. That's out in Blu-ray and DVD. You know, go and see it. Go and buy the soundtrack. The soundtrack's amazing. You can actually buy it. It's great. I think, I think they even did a think for, for all you um, music aficionados out there. You can actually certain films they released on vinyl films, music on vinyl. And this has been released on vinyl too. So go and buy it on vinyl and buy a record player and sit in the dark. Good man. Well, look, that that that, were, that was a fantastic top five with uh, yeah. a couple of Brucey bonuses in there. So thank you very much for that. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So do you want to whiz through your and the other the other the other ones that were sort of outside this top five that you've just Yeah, well gone Bizarrely, they all look like they're going to be documentaries. I thought I'd make the other five documentaries, not because there should be a discrepancy mm. between cinema, and <clears throat> drama, and documentary, because there aren't. It was like cinema is cinema; it doesn't really matter. But I think mm. it just fitted nice, and, so, and also I would have found it find it difficult to, to do another five anyway. And so my five were documentary uh, start number five was a film called A Man Whose Mind Exploded, which. Uh, directed by Toby Ames, uh, who most people may remember from covering alternative music on MTV in the 90s. And this film's great. This, this, this film is fantastic. It's about an old gay bohemian guy who's living in squalor in the South Coast and who has obviously severe mental difficulties. And, you know, the film is like, it's like, Toby, the director, kind of like looks after him as well as making this beautiful film about him. And it's a great, it's a great film about you know people who are bohemians but aren't actually creative. What happens to them? You know, unless they say, you know what, I am going to get a job now and fit back into society. What if they don't? What happens to these guys? You know, and, and girls. I think about this all the time. And this. No, we had we had I had I had Toby on on the podcast when it came out. It was it was great talking to him. And yeah, and so so that's a film again. Uh, all these films you can get on DVD because the thing with documentary and a lot of British cinema is they just go straight on VOD very very quickly. So you know these are things you can get hold of quite easily, which is great. Uh, my number four film is American Interior, another Soda Pictures. This is a beautiful little travelogue 
Uh, Absolutely a beautiful film. Yeah, made, beautiful. made by Gruff Reese from the Super Furry Animals. And it's a really strange tale of him travelling to find out about this mythical uh, Welsh guy who apparently belong, went, to, went to America and belonged to a Native American tribe and stuff like that. And so he travels around America going on the journey this guy took, but as well as performing his little acoustic slideshow with his new songs and stuff like that. And he carries a puppet of this guy everywhere he goes. And and then you meet the people who he's talking to. And it's a great thing because, you know, uh, super fairies and gruffies have always been proponents of p- protecting the Welsh language. And the scenes he has talking with Native Americans trying to protect their language and stuff. And he cre- there's a really great scene at the end where he creates this bond with uh, this Native American guy who's protecting his language and uh, Griff is talking about Welsh and stuff, and it's it's beautiful, fantastic. I came out, I saw it in Soho House as screening, and I came out like singing the song all the way home. You know, there's some great music in it, which I think all the songs there is, yeah. Fun. So yeah, so that, that that was my number four. Uh, my number three was still the Enemy Within, which I think is a fantastic documentary um, about the miners' strike, like an oral history of the miners' strike, but from the perspective that we don't normally see is just letting people tell their stories and tell their tales. And, you know, for most people involved in left-wing politics or whatever, there's nothing in this that's going to shock you. But I think a lot of people who would see this that don't know what happened would be shocked to the core. And it's really upsetting as well. And I think the most upsetting thing for me, there's a point in it where the strike would have been won if the TUC would have backed them. And it's kind of that point when Hunter Thompson talks about uh, the counterculture in the late 60s, early 70s. He said there's a point in San Francisco where if you stand on the hill, you can see where the, where the wave went, 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 and then broke and rolled back. And that's exactly the same moment you get in this. It's a it's really fantastic piece of filmmaking. It won the audience prize at the Sheffield Documentary Film Festival uh, in the summer. It's just, you know, track it down. Again, it's out on DVD, it's out on video and demand, and it's really... I think that was one of the things. One of the things about getting the film made was they didn't... I think they didn't... They couldn't get funding or they wouldn't get... Somebody wouldn't fund them because they wanted both sides of the argument, and they were like... They were going to make a film which was all about the miners' side of the story because, obviously, there's enough enough news and documentary footage that's been put on TV, Mm -hmm. which is in inverted commas, given both sides of the argument, but really as being yeah. the government side of the argument. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> especially it's, press, it's prescient what's going on now. It's prescient that papers have been released this week. Uh, Paul Mason wrote a great piece in uh, The Guardian, I think, uh, about all the papers that basically prove what, what people on the left have always said, that the, the, the government's collusion with the police and all these laws that were brought in and all the way people are attacking the scene with the uh, way that it's coinciding with the Hillsborough Inquiry, the, um, the way the South Yorkshire police operated there and, and in the miners' strike as well. And so, you know, this is a film that's really, really come out at the perfect time, really. Um, my number two film is, again, I don't want people having a go at me saying, well, the person who made this film is Irish and 
it's supposed to be British. Well, you know, Mark Cousins defines himself not as Irish, as Northern Irish. And whether we like it or not, Northern Ireland is part of Britain. And so I'm counting my number two film <laughs> as Mark Cousins' great cinematic essay, The Story of Children and Film, which uh, played to great acclaim at the Cannes Film Festival in 2013. And it's basically him playing with his nieces and nephews and then talking about children in film. And we have the most amazing series of clips from lots of films that people will know and lots of films people will never have come across. But I guarantee you watch this film, you will want to see those films. Uh, he actually programmed a season of films of that were in the film at the BFI South Bank, but also toured cinemas all over the country to give people a chance to see them. Um, it was screened recently on Film 4, and bizarrely for film, it's a Film 4 film that you can actually catch on 4OD for free, I think. Uh, oh, wow. I'll check that out. I look, so people try and check that out. Or if not, you, again, you can buy it on DVD. Um, and my number one film is Nick Cave, 20,000 Days on Earth, which is a documentary about Nick Cave, but it's very, very strange. It's a purposely artificial documentary. So there's lots of constructed scenes in it, but there's loads of instances and things that are completely honest. It's like there's Nick Cave talking to a psychoanalysis called Darian Leader. Is it Darian Leader? I was getting confused. There's another one. Anyway, talking to a quite well-known psychoanalysis about creativity, about his process, and then his bits of gigs, and then it's just him. The hook is it's just his 20,000th day on air, so you see him getting up in the morning with his wife and his kids. You see him go to his office and stuff, and it's just, again, it's a great, honest portrayal of creativity, you know, and anyone that knows about Nick Cave and his past, you know, this is a man who's lived, he's lived that wild, you know, he was out of control, heroin addict for years with the birthday party and stuff like that and came out of that and on the other side and he talks about creativity like it's a job and the pressure of that job and stuff. And it's also he's a great piece of filmmaking. It's made by two artists. It premiered at the Berlinale in uh, last February. Uh, it's gone on tour in the world, won lots of prizes, and it's great. You know, even, I would say, even if you don't like Nick Cave, even if you don't know who he is, you know, <laughs> give it a chance because I think you'll get something out of it. As long as you, if you're interested in creativity and you're interested in music and you're interested in psychoanalysis... You know, this is an interesting film. And actually, I'd say, I think it's a great one and five. It's a great double bill to watch. They play with each other and riff off each other unintentionally. Uh, Nick Cage, 20,000 Days on Earth, and Toby Ames, The Man Whose Mind Exploded, I think would be an amazing double bill. I, I totally agree with you. I, 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 I've not seen the Nick Cave one. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, with what you were saying, and given where we started the conversation about to write and not to write in procrastination. What do you think? What 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 little nugget did you th did did you think was most interesting that Nick Cave revealed about the business of creativity? Well, because uh, I I've read loads of interviews with him anyway. Like one of his big writing heroes is one of my big writing heroes is James Elroy, and he has, okay. a, picture, he has a picture of James Elroy over his um, his typewriter, and because I know okay. the process, and you know for me. It's whatever works for you. And what works for Nick Cave would not work for me. Nick Cave gets up and he goes to his office and he tries to write. 
and writing lyrics for songs is completely <laughs> different. I'm not I'm not musical in any way, even though I always wanted to be. And so, but that's <clears throat> him. And so, there's no right or wrong way of do. It's like directing, you know. There's no right or wrong way of directing as long as what you do works. And, and that's why all mm. these guide guidebooks and do the do it this way, do it that way are nonsense because you've got to find what works for you. I think the cave has, and it took him a long time, but what he does works for him, so that's fine. And so I don't think it's something you should watch and say, oh, that's what Nick Cave does, I'm going to do that, because that doesn't work for you and you're having a really hard time, you're just wasting your time. I think it's really important to find what works for you, and that can take a long time, it really can, but that's what people should be searching for. No, I think, I think that's a good way of looking at it, actually. I think it's like, see it for what it is, which is him finding a way to work, and that, that is actually the search that you're on, isn't it, really? Not, not how do I, but what is it? <laughs> That I do to work to get the work done, because it will, it will, there will be, it. and it does, it does take time, doesn't it? Which is, I guess, I guess that's that's that that must be interwoven with with that that sort of never-ending search for a voice and things, you know, because that's that's what comes of being not confidence, the wrong word, but being in it, it, being sort of absorbed by your own work must yeah. be where you find a voice. Because mm. I, I I don't I don't think I've found mine. I think I'm still very much. Very much searching. Well, that's the thing. You know, writing doesn't cost anything, so you have that level of experimentation. But filmmaking is completely different because it's so. Even on a low level, if you're just messing around with friends, it's still pretty expensive to get a camera and stuff like that. And so, and to be on a really professional level, the only way you get better is to keep making films. And but that's really, really difficult. When you look at Terence Davis, never never made a film in eighteen years. You know. That's really difficult because it's so expensive. Where if you're painting or sketching or writing, you know, it doesn't cost you a penny. Right then, sir. Now it's been obviously we've been you've been filling us full of love mm. with these films you've been giving us. So let's not spend too much time on the bit no. the itches that you couldn't scratch in British <laughs> film. But let's that, 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 just to just for in the for the purpose of balance. Yeah. Um, and because I mean I think you've I mean you've introduced me to films in this list, so I'm sure the listener will feel the same way. So what is it that that you you didn't go on with? Into well, you got, is, I think you've got three really, films. I I could name you the worst films I've seen this year. Actually, I will, but I'm not really going to talk about them because they're just they're just beyond bad. I'm I'm, I'm going to talk about well the one film I think is the worst film of the year, which I will talk about. Um, but there's two films that aren't bad films, but they just got so overpraised. And I, one of them really offended me, really. I came out to cinema so angry. Um, but anyway, you know, because I think the, one of the worst ones I saw this year was a film called Plastic, which is the perfect name for it. It, it was like a Hollyoaks late night episode directed by a 16-year-old who'd seen True Romance too many times. It was just beyond bad. How it got a cinema release, I have no idea. Took loads of money, though, you know, so what do I know? And then there's other films. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's no, no accounting for taste, as, um, as someone famously once said. And then we have all those really bad British gangster films like The Hooligan Factory and We Still Kill the Old Way and all top dog and they just go on and on all the same bloody names and then uh that oh the nick hornby from a long way down it was so bad so so bad oh, but you know the, the film the two films that i'm saying 
And also, I could be really controversial. I got a lot of trouble for, for a review I wrote about Will and Testament, Tony Benn, which I thought was absolutely abysmal. It was so... It was inept. It was, like, directed by someone who'd never picked up a camera in their life. It was so bad. And the background I thought was really weird. The guy that made it was an ex-city boy who was doing it as a tax write-off. And it was, like, he was a capitalist. And I was like... And he's making a Tony Benn film? So it was really cynical. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the the two films I said aren't the aren't the worst films of the year, but really annoyed me are firstly Richard Iodi's The Double and uh, Jan Damage's Seventy One. Uh, I'll talk about The Double first. I think anyone that knows me uh, will probably be bored to me to death of going on and on and on in a negative way about Richard Iodi. Uh, I hated his first film. Uh, the double is no better. He just gets opportunities that he shouldn't get because of his position of being the ch- chair of Footlights at Cambridge and because of people he happens to know. Um, I just don't think anyone, uh, another first-time director would get those opportunities. And I just don't think he's, he hasn't got anything to say. Uh, he's really derivative. It was like he's one of these filmmakers, like kind of like Tarantino, actually, where if you point out where they've stolen from, which are quite obvious, they get really upset and angry. Like the idea that he got he got annoyed with people comparing his first film to Wes Anderson and saying it was false is ridiculous. It was like Wes Anderson's style is so obviously his and is so arch. That any if you, if you try and do anything, even even if say Richard Ayadi had those stylistic ideas years before Bottle Rocket, it doesn't really matter because he's done it and they're there, and so you're you're going to get people referencing. This is just like Wes Anderson, you know. Anyway, and the double the same thing. It was like it's so obviously the sound design of uh, David Lynch's. Um, Oh, what was David Lynch's first film called? A Razor Head. And the production design of Cherry Game's Brazil, which controversy is a film I've always thought was amazingly overrated, but it's much better than a double. Uh, and I just didn't... <laughs> I just think it's like... There's nothing there. I think he's, his films are so vacuous. And you know what? I've actually met him a couple of times because I have a mutual friend who says, oh, you and him are getting on so well, you're so similar, you love film so much. And, and, and I was like, yeah, I know, I've met him, he's really nice. He's a really nice guy. You know, and I could never hate anyone who loves Harmony Corinne as much as I do and French cinema as much as I do, but his films are so empty. There's nothing there. And, and you know, it's really interesting. Two films came out this year. Well, one on the festival circuit. Uh, the second one has only came out this week. I think it's playing at the ICA and the Prince Charles. And that's the Denis Villeneuve film, The Double. Not The Double, sorry. The Enemy, which is based on the novel The Double by the Nobel laureate writer uh, Jose Saramanga. And that's fantastic. The film stars Jake Ginnahal. And it's so mysterious. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. It's fantastic. <clears throat> Everything that this film isn't. You know, it's just so trite. And so it's like, what do you, you know, the idea of identity, it's just, but again, everyone raved about it and said it's, it's amazing. And it's not. 
It's just, you know, and we said before we came on out, I, I said, you know, I think he's the biggest example of the Emperor's New Clothes. And he's a complete fake individual. He does this persona that he's so shy and so polite and stuff. Now, if you're really shy, you're not constantly on TV, on the radio, talking about your work. Terence Malick is shy. Terence Malick doesn't, hasn't done interviews for like 30-odd years because he's shy. You're not shy if you're on the Alan Carr show, the Graham Norton show. On, like Francine Stop, I think, is in love with him on the, uh, the film program on BBC4. He's never off it. You know, they even used an interview with him while talking about uh, Denny Villeneuve's enemy. And I was like, well, why are you going to bring that interview in? Just interview the, and they interviewed Denny Villeneuve too. But I was like, well, isn't it enough to talk to him about his film rather than talking to this chancer? You know, and one of my favorite. What, what, I, what I. No, sorry. I, 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 I was just going to say, what, what, what. Go on, finish. Yeah, go on. I, I just wanted to say it was like, you know, and, and also one of my favorite. Uh, film no, uh, film book sequences. Faber and Faber used to do this on series, and I'm sure you have a lot of them. Trader Trader one's amazing, and it was a film critic talking to a filmmaker chronologically about their films, and you get some really interesting stuff. Um, now Faber, because the the market for publishing have kind of stopped that, and they haven't done one for quite a while, which is a shame. And then I noticed they've relaunched it with Iadi on Iadi. Now, this is a man who's made two feature films and a couple of music <laughs> videos for the Arctic Monkeys. And I'm, really? And then it gets better. It's him interviewing himself. Now, this, of course, is the shyest man in the world. It's just nonsense. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I remember being stood at the BFI in between films, and I was in this queue. We know British people love queues. And I realised I was in a queue mm. to get to buy a copy of Ayadi and Ayadi and get it signed by him. I had to get out of that queue very, very quickly. You know, it, it, it could have got seriously messy. <laughs> My, I mean, what I, I, I saw, I saw the double, um, and just, just like, like I, I definitely, I like Brazil, and it just felt too far to derivative of Brazil in in presentation, obviously not the story. And what I thought was, what I thought, and this, you, I mean, it's, it's always difficult when you say you're disappointed because something isn't what you, what you wanted, but this is more about having seen the film and thinking about what could have been done. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a film called The Double, which obviously is an is a adaptation of, um, of, a, of a story. Uh, just, yeah. It, it's, it, so it's, it's, not, it's not like it had to be true to the book. And, mm. and so for me, there's a film that he could have, you could have done a contemporary story Set in the city and really had a, really had fun with the idea, you know. And then it would have been interesting because suddenly you'd have been taken out of the instead that whole kind of steampunk aesthetic and Jay Mascus popping up, and then you're thinking, well, that's Jay Mascus. Now I'm not in a film anymore, you know, and things like that. You know, it, it was it was that kind of thing that I found this, and, and it was ultimately very dull in the end. Um, I enjoyed Submarine, and, and that's why I went to see it. I just thought this was this just wasn't. Some of its parts did nothing for me in the end. And then my second, the film that made Go me on. angry, the film that made me so angry was Ian Demarge in 71. I've never been so angry for a long time. You know, you know, people that know me know I get angry at the drop of a hat, especially when it comes to film. <laughs> but I saw this, um, the first film I saw at the London Film Festival. Now, London Film Festival 
if your press or industry accreditation, they do two weeks of screenings before the festival starts. They do three a day at the BFI. Now, I'd missed the first three days of these because I'd been in Bosnia and I got back and I was really ill. So I went to the fourth day, which is a Thursday, and the first film in the morning was 71. Uh, and it was really infuriating. The whole rest of the week, I just kept hearing people while we were waiting for films start saying it was the best film they'd seen so far. It's set in Belfast in 1971. It also stars Man in the Moment, Jack O'Connell. Um, and it's kind of like an inverted version of uh, <coughs> Carol Reed's The Odd Man Out with James Mason, uh, where... Jack O'Connell plays a young squaddy who's in Belfast and he gets separated from his unit and has to get back to base in Republican West Belfast. And that's the story. It's just... Mm. I lived... Northern Ireland is some... Ireland and Irish history is something that interests me for a long, long time. I've lived in the South and in the North for extensive periods. I also know a lot of what would be factually in. in in, in factually uh, incorrect and what troubled me with this film is other than the British army the only sympathetic characters we see are loyalist paramilitaries now anyone that knows anything about the history of Northern Ireland is, this is ridiculous you know this is absolutely ridiculous it's, 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 it's bordering on offensive we also have there's a little child character who's the nephew of one of the senior loyalist paramilitaries that finds the Jack O'Connell character hiding in an entry and, and takes him through the peace wall and to his uncle's pub where he'll be protected because he's a British soldier. Now, this kid, when we see him and when he's walking back, is shouting the most offensive sectarian racial epitaphs no, not racial, sectarian epitaphs towards Catholics and Republicans. And you're supposed to laugh and find this funny. Now, if this was a film about the American South and the shoe was on the other foot and this was a young white kid shouting racial epitaphs, no one would laugh. It's not funny. It's offensive. It's horrible. Oh, but because he's a child, we're supposed to laugh. The filmmaker's gone on record as saying he had no real interest. He didn't know anything about the situation, uh, you know. And it's kind of like a lot of people I spoke to who have the same opinion said it's like a bad video game, the way it's shot. And in the last third, all the emotional honesty that we've uh, been set up, if it has been set up, is thrown out the window just to give us this ending that they want to give us. And it's just so silly. Jack O'Connell, he's supposed to... His accent goes all over the place, you know. I think he's, Jack O'Connell's originally from Derby, where this character is supposed to be from. But his accent's Derby one minute and then Cockney the next. It's very, very confused. Um, also, the representation of the IRA in 1971 is completely incorrect. You know, they're looked upon as being amoral gangsters, which... That may have happened later on when there was a schism in the movement. In, 19, in West Belfast in 1971, that was not the case at all. If anything, you know, the, the structure and the reg, regimental nature of the organisation meant everyone followed uh, command, did what they were told, 
that was it. In this, they're just portrayed as gangsters who were quite happily in and out of bed with a uh, special branch and uh, trying to kill each other and stuff like that. That's completely incorrect. You know, it, it's, it's a horrible film. It's, uh, you know, even as a piece of filmmaking, I, it didn't even wow me. As, 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 I, as I just said, it's like, it's like a video game, you know, and there's one great bit in it. I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, am I, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? You tell me now and I, I, I won't do it, but if I am, there's one great line that Richard Dormer says in it, which is, should be in another great film. Go on. He says... You'll be okay. I suppose you can edit it out. Uh, Richard Dormer plays uh, uh, Irish Catholic who takes Jack O'Connell characters in because they can see how much danger is. <clears throat> and he's looking after me. He said, I was in the British Army. Uh, I, I was in Burma. He said, you need to get out as quick, quick as possible because all it is is posh cunts telling poor cunts to kill thick cunts. And I was like, that line deserves to be in a better film. And bizarrely, the script is written by, I can't remember his name, he's a really interesting uh, Scottish playwright who wrote a great play called The Black Watch about the Edinburgh regiment that's been disbanded called The Black Watch. Um, Gregor Wright, I think his name was, or Gregor Wallace, I think. Uh, and so he's a really, really good playwright, you know, and he's getting into film now. But like all playwrights, I heard him on Front Row, not Front Row, uh, the film playing on Radio 4, and he really annoyed me. It's this thing that was like, all, he talks about cinema as he's talking about Hollywood cinema, and he's like, "Well, you know, you've got to make genre because uh, when audiences go to see a film, they expect this, they expect this, and if they don't get it, they won't be happy because that's what cinema is." And I'm like, "Well, no, that's not cinema at all. Cinema's a very broad church, and it's just, it's just, it's just a stupid thing to say." Anyway, there's seventy-one, and then the other films, electricity. Well, no, can I, can... Sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, this isn't, I'm not going to tell you this for you to react because obviously Stuart, Stuart, Stuart uh, Bar's not on here mm-hmm. uh, to give his reaction. But it's interesting that your top fives yeah. feature two of the same films. So both of you picked Locke, both of you picked Under the Skin. Three other films were different. But obviously your disdain for 71 wasn't shared by Stuart. Stuart had it in his top five. And he, and he and he and he and he didn't. He, it wasn't. He, it was certainly wasn't the way, what he celebrated it for. Was the fact that it was a very good action movie, not obviously its um, real or historical representation of what was happening at the time, but just simply this idea of of the uh, the soldier trapped and how to get out. So it's just, it's just interesting that, yeah, just, just looking at, as a comp- I argue with that film, I, 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 and I've done this many times with numerous people. Forget about the political thing, but I think that's also, you know, it's okay to, like, uh, have a go at the Irish situation, but if, if that was based on race and they were doing that, no one would be saying it's a great action film at all. If they were taking, taking liberties with, say, the civil rights movement in America, uh, no one would allow them to do that. Which, I'm sorry, no one would be saying it's the film of the year and it's a great action film. That's just, it would not happen. You know, it's just a complete level of... Uh, uh, double standards, you know. But but if you want to talk about how the film works, how it's constructed, the last third is laughable. We have we have this renegade group of IRA soldiers trying to get him, and they're like, we're going to get him, and as soon as you get him, kill him. Then they get him, 
and they don't decide to kill him. They decide to leave him with the, the smallest guy who's never killed anyone, and he's got to kill him. So he's having this moral dilemma to kill him, whereas the leader would have got him and just shot him in the head, because that's what they were doing all the way through the film. So why, at the end, do they go against that? Because it's... That's, right, that's bad drama. And that's my huge, That's why it can't be classed as even a good action film, because it just doesn't work. The last third just falls to pieces, because the emotional honesty of the characters that have set up earlier doesn't follow through. They're wanting to have their cake and eat it, and for me, that's bad screenwriting, and it's structurally very poor. Fair enough, fair enough. Right, sir, let's end on a high. And let's and let's okay, give it now. Well, I, didn't, I didn't even have time to talk about electricity, other than saying that is by far the worst film of the year and should be avoided like a plague. The only, the only reason we're seeing it is, and it gives British British films a bad name. And a lot of the reviews have only been good, have only been because it's British. But it also has an amazing performance by Agnes Dean, who we'll see later on in Terence Davis's new film Sunset Song, and she's going to be great in that. But this film is terrible and embarrassing, and should be buried and burned something to a crisp every last known copy of it it's a horrible film terrible is it the one about the mental health no it's the, uh, she's unless you want to find epilepsy as mental health issue which I don't think it is she's uh, she's epileptic and she goes searching for her brother in London and the, the portrayal oh, okay. of yeah, no, I saw her. London is embarrassing it's laughable I thought it was a comedy when I was watching it it's so bad and it misuses so many great actors as well. Anyway, let's move on. Let's get, let's 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 reach for the stars now, David. With your, uh, I mean, now you obviously the the point of this question usually is so that people can can point out a film that maybe people have overlooked or has been lost in the archives, or whatever. But it's 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 up to interpretation, and I'm no stickler for the rules. Well, so I, um, I, I would have done that, but the last time I was on, you asked me the same question, and I said elephants, and so I've kind of done that already. Uh, yeah, to exactly. introduce people to something that they may not have heard of or whatever, and so I've gone the opposite way this time. And what's the film you're gonna you're gonna point the finger at as a as a great piece of British cinema? Lawrence of Arabia, which I just think is a masterpiece, and it's a mas- it's a masterpiece for very numerous reasons. First off, they spent over a year shooting this film. That's over a year. That's not with breaks. They were shooting, I think, 340, no, 370 days. That's unbelievable. Now, comparatively today, that's like, that's like a big, it's a big, this is like probably the biggest budget film of that time. That's the equivalent of like Titanic or something. And the difference is Titanic was aimed at teenage girls to make money. This is, this is trying to make serious political points. The sc- and I think, you know, the difference now, if that was made today, it would be made by Ridley Scott, who's a filmmaker I don't much care for. But hmm. the thi- Ridley Scott's problem recently is because he's, well, he's 83 now or something, and he constantly wants to keep making films. And so he makes films when the scripts aren't ready. And the scripts are quite banal. And that's the difference, because he's a great shooter, you know, he's worked in advertising for, for so many years. Uh, and Lawrence Arabia's script by Robert Bolt 
is unbelievable. It's just, it's so deep. It deals on so many issues on a, a social, political scale. As I was saying to you earlier, this is prescient today. If you want to, you want to look at one of the reasons why the Middle East is the way it is now. Look at this, the way Britain and France carved up the whole of the region and went went against promises to indigenous peoples over there. You know, and the dialogue, the di- people talk about the great dialogue on films that can be quoted and quoted. This film has more quotable dialogue, that I think, than any other film. There's My favourite pub in Liverpool is a pub called The Grapes, not the famous one on Matthew Street, which is just a tourist hovel. It's a little one in a side street with a really good friend of mine and his wife run. And he, uh, his name's Paul, uh, lovely Nigerian Liverpool chap, and he is obsessed with this film. And when I when I used to live in Liverpool, I'd go in there. We used to spend hours boring everyone, just quoting lines of dialogue at each other. You know what I mean? And it, and it's still. And every time I see it, it's like it's just so witty, and it it has great riffs on uh, media representation of war, uh, what war does to people. This is a far more honest film about what war does to a man than American Sniper, which I had the misfortune to see on Sunday morning. Uh, yeah, and so it deals with all those things. And it's also a beautiful film. It also, it's poetic, it's beautiful, it's moving. It also has one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history. It's one of those films that is aped affectionately by The Simpsons, where people know these iconic images who've never seen the film. I, 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 I had a conversation the other day with someone, and I kid you not, this is someone who studied in film at university who was talking about the famous scene in The Seventh Seal between death and uh, Max von Sydow playing chess. He didn't know it came from a, a Ingmar Bergman film. He, th- he thought The Simpsons were, were taking the mickey out of Bill and Ted. Yeah. Seriously, <laughs> and you know, I, I had to bite my hand and be. I, I, I was like, "Really?" I said, "You really need to go and see this film." You know, I said it's from a really famous 1950s uh, film by possibly the greatest filmmaker of all time. Anyway, and so like that scene with Omar Sharif walking to the camera for an age through the haze of the desert. You know, the, the match, one of the greatest match cuts in cinema history, where he lights the match. You know, it's just... And the representation of uh, the English officer class, you know, and, you know, the sense of honour. And, you know, it's not all people in the officer class that's a horrible and a racist like that, you know. And T. T. Lawrence himself is a fascinating character. You know, a fascinating character. He really, really was, you know. It's a film about all those things, about honour and dignity and the establishment everything. I could go on watching it for ages, talking about it for hours and hours and hours, and, you know, I, I'm not even going to attempt to start quoting some of the great lines from it. But you said you only recently saw it for the first time, and you well, no, it's, it's ironic. It's ironic that you, you, that you choose it as this this one it's in, a, in an end-of-year review of 2014, because I, I, in fact, saw it in 2014, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and Wished I could have watched it on the big screen was mm. kind of the main thing though because there's I so would, much there's so much to look at and you obviously you don't get to see it because 
I'm watching it on the TV. I'm not watching it on. I don't well, have a particularly large it, it, TV. It either. could be worse. They always used to show it growing up. You could have watched it in the 1980s on a square. 12-inch box that was pan and scanned on, on the BBC, which is not the way to say it. I'm sure you saw it in the right ratio on a decent-sized screen, you know. But I was lucky enough to see it for the first time at the cinema at the London Film Festival about uh, three years ago, and they showed it uh, NFT1 in... It was a 4K restoration. It's oh, it just amazing. Because oh, wow. it's like four hours long and they had the proper overture and the interval with the music and everything. And you know, less so with the music, Michelle, you know, uh, Mich- um, Maurice Jarre, uh, the father of Jean-Michel Jarre, the score, you know, you just hear that and it's like one of the, it's always used as temp music uh, on award season and stuff like that and it's amazing. Hey, it's, it's the whole thing's fantastic. It's great. Go and see it. It's Even if you've seen it, see it again and then watch it again. <laughs> well, look, thank you very much for uh, taking all this time out for um, to give us your best of 2014. Uh, let's just... I'll run down your, your, your... Certainly your top five, the first ones you give us yeah. as a reminder of people. So you had you had Locke, Stardup, Frank, then we had a tie... For exhibition and spell toward off the darkness, and at yes. number one, your best film of 2014 was Under the Skin, um, yes. for reasons explained earlier. Uh, so, thank you very much, and uh, good luck with your filmmaking. Thank you. Have you, have you got any, any updates on that? Anything you, you want to tell us where uh, you're heading uh, with that? Not really. We're in talks with a, a French sales agent, uh, which is going quite well. But I, I'm I'm working on something new, a uh, film set in New Brighton, which anyone knows Liverpool, oh. Northwest is, is a faded seaside town, which is on the other side of the Mersey, Liverpool. Out of season with two French people who can't speak English. We've never explained why they can't speak English, and they're stuck there. An older guy and a younger girl, and their relationship's disintegrating. Now, I'm waiting to hear... From the Torino Film Festival, because I think I've made the shortlist to be interviewed for the screenwriting scheme, which... Um, oh, well done. Which, uh, what's his name, was on it. Uh, the guy who made... Uh, Dwayne Hopkins was on it for Bypass. And then after doing the, after doing a okay. year of the screenwriting one, you go into production, they give you a percentage of the money for the film, and that's what he did with Bypass. You know, uh, Dwayne Hopkins, anyone knows him, is a really interesting British filmmaker. Again, he makes formalism, mm. so films are very hard to get financed. And his latest film, Bypass, which came out of the Torino Film Festival schemes, uh, played Venice this year and London Film Festival, all set in the northeast and really good. So maybe look out for that. That'll be out soon, I should think. Nice one. Well, look, well fingers crossed for you there, and hopefully... If something gets moving there, we'll get you back on to discuss yeah. that. I think you talked about that when you when you was on the show last yeah. time. So uh, uh, I, I talked about a little bit, yeah. Nice one. Well, good luck with that, and uh, thank you very much, and happy New Year. And you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.